Good morning. (coughs) Our scripture today comes from the second chapter of John. It's found on page 863 in the Pew Bible. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, though um, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. They remained there a few days. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So just when we think we have the hang of this thing called parenting, our kids grow up, and we have to figure out how to relate to them as adults. That's why I picked this scripture for this morning It brings me great comfort to know that if you are the parent of adult children, things can be complicated, even if as the parent you're the Virgin Mary and the adult child is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? They're out of wine, Jesus. So? Do whatever he tells you to. In her defense, Mary was just trying to help little Jesus get his ministry career started. Granted, he was 30 years old at the time, right? How do we navigate this experience of parenting adult children? Well, full confession. So far in this series, I've had at least a little bit of experience with the things I've been talking about. I acknowledge that my children are eight and six. I don't know what it's like to parent adult children, but I know what it's like to be an adult with parents. So I've seen it from that side, and I believe that there are some general principles that if we undertake these principles, it's going to help us have really fruitful relationships with our children, even as they grow into adulthood. So here's the first one. We need to acknowledge our differences. There are some parents who want to continue to teach their adult children how things should be done without giving those children the grace to live their own lives, and even experience their own mistakes. 
I was thinking about a scenario this week to help illustrate this point, and here's the one I came up with. I want you to imagine that my lovely wife, Andy, who's a physician, called her mom one day, and her mom answered the phone and said, hey, honey, how are you? And, and Andy said, oh, I'm, I'm fine, but I've got this great patient, and man, it's just a complicated patient. I can't figure out exactly the plan of care. Now, I want you to imagine that Andy's mom thinks for a minute... And then Andy's mom, who spent her entire career as a dispatcher for the Pennsylvania State Police, said back to my doctor wife, you know what, when I don't feel well, I take Motrin, it really helps a lot. Probably you should just tell them to take some Motrin. (laughs) But mom, they have congestive heart failure, that's the worst possible thing they could do. There are times, as parents... We get so used to having the answers for our kids that it's hard for us to admit when we don't have all the answers. In fact, part of the challenge as our children grow up is that as parents, we must grow up as well and recognize that as much as we would like to, we don't have everything figured out for our kids. Now, acknowledging our differences is important recognizing there are some things that our young people are going to know and have a greater degree of expertise in than we do. That's important. But I can hear what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but pastor, what happens if I really do know what they should do? What happens if I really do have wisdom that they would benefit from? Well, there are going to be those moments. So what do we do? That brings us to a second principle. We need to share our wisdom without compromising their freedom. We need to share our wisdom without compromising their freedom. Having adult children can be a wonderful opportunity to share life's lessons. It can be replete with joy, especially when we see our kids grow up and start to have kids of their own and they realize how difficult parenting actually is. Children want to hear the wisdom from their parents. They just don't want to have to sacrifice their freedom in order to hear it. So share, but do so lovingly. You know, we see this wisdom in Scripture, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. What he's saying is that in Christ there is broad, far-reaching freedom, but our freedom must be governed by wisdom. My dad does this really well in my life. I've thought about this, and, and my father When he knows I'm going through a tough time and he and I are having one of those father-son conversations, my dad will tend to inhabit this kind of threefold process. The first thing he'll do is he'll say, well, here's my story. And he'll tell me some story from his life. Like one of the things I struggle with as an adult is work-life, home-life balance. I'm not the only one who struggles with this, correct? Right? So I'm struggling with how how do I give enough at work and how do I give enough to my family? And, and, And so let's say that's the topic of conversation. My dad would say something like, well, you know, throughout my career, I really too, I struggled to, to make sure I made enough time, uh, for your family at home. So he'll say, here's my story. And then he'll say, here's my lesson. Right? And the lesson I learned from that is that if, if I had to go over, go back and do over again, I would have, I would have fought for more family time. But it's this third thing that's critical. You see, what you would expect a parent to do is then say, now here's what you need to do, son. That's not what he does. My dad will say, here's the story. Here's the lesson. And then he'll say, here's the encouragement. It's not about him telling me what I should do. He's encouraged me. He's saying, I know this is hard, son. It was hard for me too. But I believe in you and I love you and I'm proud of you and I know you're going to get through this and figure out the right path. Here's the story. 
Here's the lesson. Here's the encouragement. What I've seen my dad do time and time again in my life is try and impart his wisdom without compromising my freedom. And I'm so grateful for it. Now, up to this point, we've been talking about children who uh, require their independence and children who want and long for their independence. But to articulate the third principle, what happens when our children struggle to leave the nest? When they're fighting not for their independence, but fighting to stay dependent? Well, this brings us to a third principle for parenting, and it's simply this. We need to help without enabling. We need to help without enabling. This is such a difficult balance to strike. I'm not talking about kids, by the way, who graduate from college and need to move back home for a season. That's going to happen. I'm talking about children who grow up and fail to realize that it is part of their responsibility if they're going to continue to be in a household to somehow find a way to contribute to the household. I've had a number of conversations with parents who very reluctantly confessed to me that their adult children were taking advantage of them. As parents, we desperately, we desperately want to help our kids, but... If we're enabling them, we're keeping them from standing on their own two feet. And over time, that's going to do more damage than good. In fact, that's what the term enabling means in a clinical setting. It means to allow a family member or a friend to make choices that result in harm. So if we found ourselves in this kind of enabling area, what do we do to fix it? Well, this is the hardest prescription of them all. It requires a difficult conversation that outlines lovingly but clearly what the boundaries are going to be. I wish I could give you an easier prescription than that. But the only way to establish healthy boundaries is through healthy, honest conversation. I am reminded once more of T.D. Jake's now famous statement when he says, Eagles don't learn to fly by flying. They learn to fly by falling. So far throughout this series, our focus has been on parents. And uh, parents, whether they're parenting young children or adult children. I want to conclude our series by sharing just one other set of thoughts. How do we influence the lives of children who are not part of our nuclear families? After all, in our baptismal covenant, we all take on some responsibility for raising each other's children. Just a few weeks ago, I had a very powerful experience in my life. I had the honor of... Uh, officiating a funeral for an amazing woman in our congregation who left behind three amazing school-age daughters. And uh, it was a blessing and a challenge, as you could imagine, to walk with this family in this difficult time. And one of the things that I noticed within myself as I was doing that was that this question started to emerge in me. I thought, wow, you know, what would happen to my wife and my kids if something happened to me? Now, I know that sounds like a kind of a, a sorrowful conversation to have with oneself, but it's, I think, an important one. And there were two places where I found great, great comfort. The first was, if something were to happen to me, I believe Andy and my kids would be okay, in part because our families, Andy's family and my family, would rally around us. But here's the second thing. I also believe that the Ebenezer Church family would be there for my family. I believe that. I believe that you would be there for my family just like if something happened to you, I would be there for yours. But here's the further thought. 
Though it's important for us to be there for one another in our hours of trial and need, we don't have to wait for hours of trial and need to be there for one another. In fact, we shouldn't. Our baptismal covenant calls us time and time again to be invested and involved in the lives of young people. So how do we do it? Well, one thing we have to do is we have to be available. You remember in our scripture reading from last week, the disciples, they tried to prevent kids from coming to see Jesus. And Jesus says, let them come to me. Don't forbid them because this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Jesus modeled availability to children for us in that scripture passage in Luke. Sadly, there are some young people in our lives who don't get enough love. And we need to be available to love them. But even when children are loved desperately by their families, they need to receive love and encouragement from others. I think about the people here at Ebenezer Church who lavish love and encouragement and mentorship on kids from our TNT ministries, access ministries, all throughout their, the child's life. We have volunteers here called to these great ministries. When I was in high school, the guy who led my uh, high school ministry was a guy by the name of Dr. Jim Corton. Jim's a surgeon, and he had a wife and four kids. He had a wife and four kids, and he was a surgeon. And yet, every Wednesday night, he opened his home. He played his guitar and sang songs with young people. Then he opened the Bible and led us in trying to understand God's Word. My guess is, if you think back on your life, you're going to remember somebody in your life who, when you were a child, went out of their way, even though it wasn't convenient, went out of their way to invest in you. I believe God calls us to be available to the children in our lives as well. Last week we began confirmation class here at Ebenezer Church. This year we have 31 confirmands. Amen? Yeah. And I think about all the, all the mentors that are, are part of that process as well, investing in these young people's lives to help them go from having their parents' faith to having the faith of, the faith that God calls them to have. I believe all of us need to be available, so how can we help that happen? Well, today, after worship in the gym, there's a table. And at that table, you can walk up and you're going to see Jennifer Schaup sitting at that table. And and she's going to be there and you can walk up and say, hey, I want to get involved. And she's going to say, okay, what do you want to do? I just want to throw out some suggestions. You know, we need help at our 945 worship service holding babies. What a tough job. If you don't want to do it, if you'll come preach for me, I will do it. We need help uh, at our children's level, at elementary school level, with, with our Sunday school. We need help at our tween ministry called Top of the Rock. We need help at TNT, our middle school ministry, Axis, our, our senior high school ministry. We need help at Brain Builders, our tutoring ministry at Moncure Elementary School. And if none of that seems to fit for you... There's a key, uh, a computer open, a kiosk open at the table where you can sign up to become a big brother or big sister through Big Brothers Big Sisters of Fredericksburg. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but I believe God's calling you and me to be available to the children around us. Here's the second thing. Not only do we need to be available, we also need to be grace-filled. On occasions, we adults think it's our job to fix the youngins we see. Endure, um, give, give me the grace of walking through a scenario. So let's say you're at a restaurant and you're enjoying a lovely meal. Until the family with that kid gets seated right beside you. 
You know what I'm talking about. Not the, not the well-behaved child who colors in the coloring book. This is the child who takes the crayons and throws them down. And then the coloring book throws it down, throws the chicken tenders and the french fries and doesn't stop talking. And there's a time at which you say to yourself, I really just need to go over there and help. Not only help save that child, but by extension their whole generation. You've probably had a feeling kind of like that, I'm guessing. Here's why I bring it up. Because you know what? It's not my job or your job to fix anybody else. In fact, I am incapable of fixing anybody else. You know what? I am incapable of fixing myself. That's what the cross was all about. God doesn't call us to fix kids. God does call us to be grace-filled and loving to kids. One of the things I find that helps me be grace-filled to children is remembering the folly of my own youth. For example, when I was five years old, my family went on vacation to visit uh, relatives in Indiana. All I remember of Indiana is that there was corn everywhere. Well... Somehow in the midst of all this corn, my parents found a shopping mall. So all six of us, my parents, my two older sisters, my older brother and I, went into the shopping mall. And as is appointed unto little boys in a shopping mall, while mom and sisters go off to shop for clothes, they sit on a bench. And so I was sitting there, five-year-old little Robbie, sitting on a bench right next to my eight-year-old brother, when a television news crew came up. And they were interviewing people at the mall about something. I have no recollection of what they were interviewing people at the mall about. But I do remember they came up to my brother and they asked if they could interview him. And he said yes. And I thought it would be really funny if throughout the entire interview I did this. (laughs) And so we're seated on the bench and they take the whole interview. I'm literally, the whole time I'm doing this. And it was great until that night at 6 o'clock we were at my grandparents' house and the news came on. (laughs) My parents did not think it was as funny as I did. One of the things that inspires us to be grace-filled is when we realize that we did not have a perfect record as a kid. We need to be available. We need to be filled with grace. But... Here's the third thing, and maybe the most important. If we want to make a difference to successfully influence the lives of young people, we need to be respectful to them. Now, you may not have expected to hear that, because what we generally talk about is how young people should be respectful to older people, and I believe in that too. But, I also know that in the course of my ministry career and my interactions with young people, I've discovered that Our young people have this tremendous radar, this unbelievable ability to know precisely when we are being inauthentic. They can smell it, and they don't like it. They're used to being treated as if they don't understand complicated matters. They're used to having their feelings and their concerns brushed aside. Young people are hungry to be given the opportunity to act and interact like adults. I'm not saying let the 10-year-old drive the car. Just give them a chance to be heard. Listen to them. Because we don't understand everything they're facing, and there are some things that they can teach us. Pull out your cell phone, hand it to a 12-year-old, and watch what they can do 
with it. No matter how old or young, we desperately want the best for our children. That's what this series was designed to help us to do, to take steps towards being the best parents and mentors we can be. I particularly want to acknowledge Tim Elmore, whose book, 12 Mistakes a Parent Can Avoid, was really helpful to me in this series. I also want to point out that on the second floor of the ministry center, back behind you, there is a library that we maintain here at Ebenezer Church, and there are all kinds of great resources in there to help spurn the spiritual discipline of parenting. I commend it to you. But I want to end the series by just telling you one last story. A number of months ago, my eight-year-old son, Brock, came into the living room where I was enjoying a Saturday afternoon's rest on my lazy boy. My son walked in and asked me a question that, frankly, I wasn't prepared for, not yet. My eight-year-old little boy asked me, he said, Dad, how do we know that Jesus really existed? Now, I expected this when he was 14, but not when he was eight. So after I composed myself for a second, I gave him the basic answer I would give any of you if you asked me that same question. I talked about the veracity of the biblical witness. I talked about the reality of extra-canonical items that support the, the, the existence of Jesus Christ that come from the first century. I thought that was going to be the end of the conversation, but Brock had other plans for us that day. He started asking me another question, then another question. What I discovered pretty quickly was that what was happening was this was the very first conversation in which my son was trying to take the faith he'd been given his whole life and make it his own. So I had him come lay with me on the lazy boy, which if you've ever seen the size of that child was shocking that we both fit in this chair. (laughs) And we started at the beginning. I told him about the first creation story of Genesis chapter 1, how God is powerful. God says something and it happens. Talked about the second creation, Genesis chapter 2, that that second story, that ancillary tale where God, not being strong and and powerful, but, but intimate and close, God kneels down and forms humans from the dust of the earth and then blows the breath of life into them. In those first two chapters, we see the fullness of God. God is both kingly and powerful and yet intimate and close. We talked about sin which enters the story in, John, in Genesis chapter 3. We talked about how sin is a reality of history, but it's also a reality for our lives, that sin's what we call hurting ourselves and hurting others and hurting God. We talked about Abraham and Isaac. We talked about Jacob and Joseph and how Joseph found himself in Egypt and 400 years later the people of God were still in Egypt. In fact, now they were enslaved and God couldn't stand it anymore. God just couldn't take it. So God sent Moses because God would not abide his people being enslaved. God's people were called to be free. Talk to Barack about King David and his son Solomon, about prophets and priests and kings alike. And finally, we got to the story of Jesus, and we got to talk about how Jesus changes the narrative when it comes to how we're supposed to treat each other. We used to be that we're supposed to, to love the people who are our friends and hate the people who are our enemies, but Jesus says, no, 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 that can't work anymore. In time, we got to the cross. And both father and son cried. But then we got to Easter Sunday and we both laughed through our tears. 
Finally, I got to tell Brock about this experiment that God came up with called the church and how, how that little eight-year-old boy is a, a part of what God is continually wanting to do in this world. All throughout this series, one of the things I've been completely honest about is that I do not have all the answers when it comes to parenting. But when my little boy was ready to talk about faith, I made time and gave him the best answer I possibly could. I just want to conclude this series by reminding you of something you probably already know. It's important to help our kids know they're loved and they belong and they have purpose. But I think the most effective, most important thing we're ever going to talk to our kids about is their story, which starts in Genesis chapter 1 with a God who is kingly and powerful and goes all the way through their inclusion in the church That's their story about a God who loved them desperately would never let them go, just like it's our story. And so, if you haven't had that conversation with your child, I want to invite you to make sure that you create time to do it. If they're not ready to have it yet, how might you respond when they are? I know that being a parent is not an easy thing. And when you don't have children of your own, taking time to invest in the lives of other children is also not easy or always convenient. But I just want to remind you of all the things that you and I are likely to do in the course of our lives. There is likely nothing more important than the way we invest and raise up the next generation. And thankfully, we get to do it together. Would you pray with me? Loving God, we thank you for the gift of these remarkable treasures in our lives. Not only for our own children, but for the children who grace these hallways in our church, for the children who are in Sunday school this very moment, for the children who are in the local schools here, and for children around the world. You give all of us a stake, a share in raising this next generation, and God, it can be a daunting, daunting prospect, but we have a tremendous example. You are Heavenly Father. God, please bless our families. Please bless our endeavors to invest in and love these children and help them to grow up to live lives that will bring glory to your name, lives that will be meaningful, impactful, lives that will transform the world. We pray these things with great expectation. We pray them with great need. We pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.